the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate episode this week, and it's been sort of a busy week, both in the world of real estate and the world of true crime. Um, I'm just trying to keep my head above water over here. Um, Alana, I know you've been working like crazy too. Melanie, what have you been up to this week? So what I've been <laughs> watching and listening to uh, nonstop for the last couple of months has it been everything related to the Murdoch murders. You've been obsessed. Yeah, I have been. Um, I'll be really happy when this trial's done because I need to get this out of my system. <laughs> so yeah, so I started off with the Mandy Matney Murdoch Murders podcast. Which was fabulous. Yeah, and uh, binged that uh, nonstop for months and then finally got up to date. And then I watched, I think, the HBO uh, special and now it's the court uh, trial. It's the trial where Alec Murdoch is on trial for uh, murdering his wife and son. So it's not really the financial crimes, but they talk a lot about the financial crimes and even a little bit about the boat case, all of that. So if you're not familiar with this and really want to waste a lot of time going down a big rabbit trail, uh, rabbit trail, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. Well, yeah, yeah. I have a tendency to use expressions incorrectly, so just you know, <laughs> bear with me. Rabbit hole um, in a case that has all sorts of onion, you know, layers uh, to peel off. Uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend that. But um, I was going to let you not guys know about Emily D. Baker, and she's this YouTuber, um, former prosecutor. And so, if you want to watch the trial, but actually the court treat. TV kind of is really boring and has a lot of commercials. You watch, she's watching the actual video of it and she's explaining it all to you in a really humorous, very energetic way. Great oh, idea. That sounds so much better than court TV. Yeah. So I've learned a lot. And, and since my older son is also in mock trial right now, it cracks me up. And so uh, we were at the dinner table talking about objection, hearsay, relevance, leading the witness. So I don't know if I necessarily know what any of these mean, <laughs> but we use it around the house like we actually know what we we're talking about. I love that. Well, I've been going into the office. You, you've been working at home. <laughs> But we have a TV on the wall in our office, and so I've just been streaming court TV too. But I've kept the volume down. So really, you're just getting like the headlines. Um, but I'm pretty sure my coworkers think I'm crazy. So just to add to that, I'll start doing the YouTube one, and that'll be even better. But, you know, we've all probably made fun of our kids at some point in time for watching mm -hmm. YouTubers that are watching or playing video games. Or unwrapping presents when they were little. <laughs> that was a weird one. I don't know if I know that one. Oh, really? Your kids didn't do that, did you? I didn't see them unwrap presents, but I saw people like undo packaging. Yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. That was a big thing when There's kids a market were for anything. Yeah. I'm there. sure my kids know about it. I'm going to go home and ask them, did you watch YouTube about that? But yeah, so I made fun of my kids watching. Like I was like, I think you prefer to watch YouTubers play video games than to actually play the video games. You would think. Yeah. And they went through that. So now they're making fun of me. Are you watching YouTube of a trial? And I'm like, yes, yes, yeah. I am. Yeah. Well, speaking of things you watched as children, I mean, I guess it wasn't really a child, but when I started researching this story, which takes place on the Upper West Side, 
I was envisioning Gossip Girl. Mm -hmm. And so lots of glitz, lots of glamour. But unbeknownst to me, that is actually the Upper East Side, which is very different than the Upper West Side of New York. So I learned something this week. Um, You know, jumping right into the story, you know, by comparison, the Upper West Side is known for being really family friendly and laid back. It's sandwiched between two parks, so it's sandwiched between Riverside Park and Central Park. So it's one of the greenest parts of Manhattan. And it has a reputation for attracting artistic personalities, you know, think professors and filmmakers, writers, et cetera. So if you need a visual, instead of picturing Gossip Girl, picture one of my very favorite murder slash murder podcast shows, Only Murders in the Building, which is set. Oh my God, it's so good. So good. Did you know that was set in the Upper West Side? I didn't realize. No. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Can I tell you all something? Please. Steve Martin is my old man crush. Oh, 100%. Yes. (laughs) You're blushing a little bit. Whatever. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Like recently or has he always been your old man crush? It's been a while. It's it's totally opposite into the spectrum, I guess, in age. Uh, Bradley Cooper, Steve Barton. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk about a list that those two never go on together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, well, I know what I'm getting you for your birthday. Okay. Right? Something Steve Martin. You can put in you can put Steve Martin's picture next to Elvis on your wall. So we're back. Yeah, I love it. Um, that's amazing. Okay, well, the next time I watch Only Murders in the Building, I'm gonna think about you. Yeah. But then also, it was really interesting when I was doing some research. Like if you are familiar with the Upper West Side. There are a lot of like little nuances and inside jokes that they use. So they were saying like, it's really fun for people who used to live there and have moved away to watch this show because it really plays into the spirit of that neighborhood. So Only Murders in the Building is set in another architecturally significant building on the Upper West Side. But our crime today occurs in a post-war building called the Dorchester Towers. And the Dorchester Towers are a massive or it is a massive white brick building. There is a 20-story wing on Broadway and a 34-story wing on Amsterdam Avenue. And the building takes up a full block between Broadway and Amsterdam Avenues and 68th and 69th Street and has 683 apartments. Now, if you are looking at buying or renting in the Northeast, you'll find that a lot of descriptions of properties list buildings as either pre- or post-war And there's a big difference between the two. So pre-war buildings were generally built after 1900, but before before World War II. And you'll notice that these buildings are more ornate and have a lot more architectural character um, than buildings built after World War II. You know, in general, they'll have beam ceilings or built-in bookcases. They'll have higher ceilings. Um, And after World War II, you know, I think there was just really a focus on you know, quick and easy, taking care of Mm -hmm. things as efficiently as possible. And so for lack of a better word, a lot of buildings that were built post-war are a little more cookie cutter. Um, They do have more modern amenities and a little bit more functional layout. Mm -hmm. So people, I think, really just have to decide, you know, what's more important. Is it the character of the home or the functionality of the home that that they really enjoy most? Got it. So it's in this post-war Dorchester Towers building that Shelley Kovlin and her husband are living when she is murdered in 2009. Now, interestingly enough, New York law does not consider any death in the home to be a material fact. Therefore, it's not required to be disclosed. So if a buyer asks and the seller knows, 
then they should answer truthfully. But no legal action can be brought against a seller or agent for failing to disclose any sort of death on a property. Interesting. It is interesting because that's not the way it is here in Texas. Right. Um, I think here in Texas, if sellers aren't required to disclose a death that occurs on a property that resulted from natural causes, a suicide, or an accident unrelated to the crime, mm-hmm. or to the, excuse me, an accident unrelated to the property. But if there's a murder or an accident related to the property, that does have to be mm-hmm. disclosed. Right. So Shelly Coveland meets her husband, Rod, in 1998 at a Jewish singles party, and they have a fast and furious relationship, despite their age difference. At the time they meet, she was 36 and he was 25. Now, within six weeks, they are engaged, and with six months, they... Within six months, they have eloped to Vegas to get married. It's fast. Very fast. Now, by most accounts, the first few years of their marriage goes really well. They have a daughter. And then not long after that, Shelly gets pregnant with twins. But this pregnancy has a lot of complications. And she ends up delivering them at six months. And neither one of the babies survives. And it's after this heartbreak that the marriage really starts to have serious trouble. But they do go on a year and a half later to have another baby, a little boy. Now, let's talk about Rod for a minute. Despite having a degree from Columbia, Rod is not really great at holding a job, and he ends up playing backgammon professionally at all hours of the day and night, and that really starts to take a toll on their marriage, as one might expect. You said backgammon's the game with the skinny triangles and the disc things and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you didn't know there was a, a job description to I play no that idea. professionally? I had no idea. Yeah, did y'all ever play that growing up? I've never played that before. I've seen it. Never played it. Yeah. Um, we have a backgammon set, and my younger son went through a phase where he was playing it a decent bit with my father when he was I coming totally into town. I can totally see him doing that. Yeah. yeah. And it looks kind of fun, and I've always kind of wanted to learn it, but no, I've never actually sat down and paid attention. Um, but, My dad had one growing up and okay. it came in like this leather. It almost looked like a briefcase that unfolded. I don't know if that's how they all come or not, but Fancy, we, yeah. we played with it, but I have no idea how to play the game. Yeah, we should learn. Yeah, okay. We'll just yeah. add that to our growing <laughs> well, list of things we need I to mean, do. You still owe me to learn to, uh, to play um, Mahjong. Yes, yes. And Valley of the Dolls movie night. We just wanted to do that. I mean, and a trip to LA. <laughs> we, we have got <laughs> so many fun things that we need yes. to, to I agree. do. I agree. Okay, so Rod, um, amazing guy that he is, starts talking to women online while playing backgammon and then in person. And then he starts going on dates with them despite the fact that he's still married. Now, sometime right before their 10-year wedding anniversary, Shelly discovers that he is having not just one, but multiple Mm. affairs. And she decides not to say anything to him yet. And they go on to have their 10th anniversary. And it's about this time that he goes to her and says, hey, I'd really like to have an open marriage. I bet you would. Uh, Yeah. And so she declines. She is um, not very happy about this arrangement. And she thinks this is probably the right time to confront him about these affairs that she knows he's been having. So in early 2009, 11 years into their relationship, Rod tells Shelly that he will move out of the apartment if she leases the apartment across the hall for him. And Shelly, now remember, he's playing backgammon for a living. Shelly has a really great job. She's definitely the breadwinner in this family. And so he needs her to sign this lease for him. You know, we looked right now, a studio in the Dorchester is going for like $4,000 a month. Mm. So, you know, this is not an inexpensive lease she is signing. Right. 
Um, now let's talk about the apartment they were living in for just a minute. Shelley's dad, Joel, purchased this apartment in 1985 for $145,000. And then at some point, two units that were next door to each other were combined to make apartment 515 at the Dorchester, a two-bedroom unit with a study. Nice. Now, can we talk for a minute, though, about what a devoted mom Shelley is leasing this apartment across the hall for? I mean, they're not divorced yet, but they definitely are going through a rough patch. And she's going to like see him every day. He still has a key to her apartment so he can come in and help take care of the kids. I'm torn. I don't I don't know. I don't I'm honestly I've not heard the story at all. This is my first time hearing it. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't like that. Like to me that sounds codependent and it sounds like almost abusive for him to, you know, maybe he's throwing that in her face. I'm just guessing. Like throwing that in her face. Like I'll still be here for the kids, but I need this $4,000 apartment. I'm cheating on you with multiple women. That it does I don't like it. I don't like the way it sounds. Yeah, I don't like anything about it. I mean, I do think there's something respectful and very gracious of her for wanting the kids to like not be totally upended in their life. Um, But I can't imagine putting yourself through that given the situation they're in. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I think, you know, she was definitely the bigger person Mm -hmm. in this relationship. You know, and really there's a trend now for people who are divorced, but amicably divorced, to continue to live together, you know, maybe somebody will take the second story and somebody will take the first story or, you know, the instead of one person moving out and getting a nice apartment, they will jointly get an apartment that they share when they're not living in the house mm-hmm. with their kids. Yeah, I've heard of that where they rotate. Um, I, I have a friend who had done that and it was like their joint other house. It, it was confusing to me, but, you know, seemed to work. Yeah, it's almost like they're getting like a little efficiency apartment somewhere and they're time-sharing that and then time-sharing the Mm -hmm, house. mm -hmm. It's interesting. There are a lot of different arrangements, I think, coming out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So starting in May of 2009, the divorce and custody battle really heats up after a Mother's Day outing with Rod's family where he calls her names in front of their children and his parents. And so Shelly decides to go ahead and file for divorce. Now, Rod tells the family court judge that he can't afford to pay child support. And in response, the judge forbade him to spend money to attend backgammon tournaments. Oh, no. I know. I love this judge. She's like, that's great. If you can't afford child support, you can't go play backgammon. Right. So um, that makes Rod pretty irate. And things just start spiraling from there. He calls Shelly's employer and tells them that she's using drugs and has stolen money from their joint account. And then fast forward a couple of months and Rod has the kids for his scheduled visitation, but he does not return them when they're su- when he's supposed to. And Shelly has no idea where they are. That makes my blood boil thinking about that. Oh my God. And makes like my stomach drop. I mean, thinking, well, one, you know, have they been hurt? Are they in an accident? And then two, like, did he flee the country with them? Am I ever going to see them again? I mean, that's just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, he had taken the kids to a hospital and he reported Shelly for sexual abuse what? of their two-year-old son. This guy's a gym, y'all. So the judge handling the divorce and their custody arrangement does not appreciate this tactic at all. Um, it's very clear after investigation that it's not true that Shelly is abusing their children. And she requires that all further visitations with him be supervised. Now, it's not long after this that Shelly contacts her attorney about changing her will to make sure that her $5.2 million estate 
does not end up with Rod if anything happens to her. 5.2 million? Yeah. Yeah. What? She was very wealthy. She had a very good job. Um, she was a wealth manager for Merrill Lynch and worked in partnership with her dad and her brother, mm-hmm. who were also wealth managers. I think at some point they moved to like USB Financial, so I don't want to quote her job wrong, but very successful in her career. And she came from a family who, you know, had been mm-hmm. working really hard um, over the years. Right. And you mentioned her father had originally bought the apartment, the condo, um, or at least the original in, uh, uh, incarnation of it before it was expanded. And That's right. so she grew up in, did she, had she grown up? I don't know up? that she grew up in that condo. That wasn't clear to me. Um, you know, he bought it in 85. It could have been an investment. It could have been something that, you know, he rented it out. It, I'm not really sure. But, but it, it had been, been in, in their family. family. Yes, yeah. it had been in their family for a long time. Now, fast forward to New Year's Eve 2009, and Rod gets a call from his nine-year-old daughter, who, remember, is living across the hall. And she says, there's something wrong with mommy in the bathtub. When Rod arrives, he finds Shelly floating in a pool of bloody water, and he pulls her out of the tub and calls 911. Rod starts to do CPR at the direction of the 911 operator, but when the paramedics arrive, he stops CPR, and it's apparent that she's actually been dead for quite some time at this point. So Rod tells the police that he thinks his wife must have had an accident and slipped and fell in the tub. And looking at the scene and hearing the husband and daughter's report, the police do not suspect foul play. By all accounts, the day and night before the murder were very normal. Shelly went to work. She had a hair appointment to have her hair straightened with a keratin treatment. She went home from work, told the nanny goodbye. She started helping her daughter with homework. I mean, just the course of a normal day. Mm-hmm. Now, in researching this case, I came across a 2020 episode on the crime, and they mentioned this keratin treatment, and both the reporter and I said in unison, do you know what I was going to say? <laughs> yes. Legally, Legally blonde. blonde. That's right. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, that was the, I was like, who gets a keratin treatment in their hair and then comes home and takes a bath? That's right. crazy. Now, the police, thinking this is an accidental death, did not immediately dust for fingerprints. They did not collect DNA. They didn't collect items from the bathroom for evidence. And they only spoke to a few neighbors and they really didn't take any notes about those conversations. And they also never searched Rod's apartment or anywhere else for that matter for other evidence. And let's remember, this is a building with a 24-7 doorman. So just hypothetically, if this was a person who was targeting Shelly for some reason, and that person came to either harm or kill her, he or she would have been seen coming in and out of the lobby on the security cameras. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned earlier that Shelly and Rob met at a Jewish singles party, and Shelly is a devout Jew. And part of the Jewish custom is to collect all bodily fluids and have those buried with the deceased. So the day after she dies, a member of their synagogue arrives to clean up the scene and collect any blood or tissue that needs to be buried with Shelly's body. Now, the official that cleans up the scene calls the family and says they don't need to do an autopsy because both the police and medical examiner think that Shelly's death is an accident. And so it's my understanding that under Jewish law, you can't perform an autopsy in accidental deaths. You only can get an exception for an autopsy in the case of murder. Interesting. So about 10 days later, when her family goes to pick up her death certificate, they're really surprised to find that the medical examiner has listed her death as undetermined not as an accident. And when this happened, her family had to make the very hard decision to have her body exhumed and have an autopsy performed. So sad. Yeah, it really is. Um, so 
Let's fast forward six months when the police have finally processed the crime scene. The medical examiner performs the autopsy and rules her death suspicious and suspects that she was murdered. So at least, you know, having gone through that, there was the outcome that they expected. They didn't do it for nothing. Let's fast forward six months later. That's when the police have finally processed the crime scene. Um, most of which had already been cleaned from someone with the synagogue, from the synagogue. So I'm not really sure what they thought they would find. And during that time, Rod and the kids had moved in with Rod's parents. I keep telling you all, Rod is a gem. Um, in 2011, he assaulted his mother by slamming her head into a wall. What? Mm-hmm. And two months later, he attacked his father. He steals over $80,000 from his kid's college fund. And he devises several plots to kill his parents. All um, And all of this leads to Rod's parents petitioning for and gaining custody of his children. That's insane. Now, Rod is obviously really desperate to gain access to Shelly's estate. I mean, everything he has done so far Mm -hmm. is all about getting her money. And so in 2013, he tries to get his 12-year-old daughter to accuse her grandfather of rape. What? Mm -hmm. She does not. She is very hesitant about doing that. Um, And so that doesn't go anywhere. And then later that year, he plots to kidnap his daughter take her to Mexico where he's going to pay someone $10,000 to marry her and thus emancipate her from her grandparents so that he can have access to what her estate. What in the world? Don't worry. Um, that, didn't, that plan did not work out. She's okay. And last but certainly not least, um, he composed an email from his daughter's account where she supposedly wrote, in quotes, I lied, she did not slip. So essentially, he is trying to frame his daughter for her mother's murder. What an awful person. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he just gets worse and worse. Now, this was going on for over a couple of years. That's right. And so what was going on with the, uh, the police case about her death? So that's a great question, Melanie. I think it took them quite a while to sort of build a case against him because they really didn't have a lot of physical evidence to go on. And, you know, even if they did, he had lived in the apartment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it wouldn't have been weird to see his fingerprints or his DNA somewhere. Now, what was suspicious about her death? Was it that she drowned or was it that there was like um, drugs in her system? So, I think the main thing that was so suspicious was how the bathroom was sort of torn apart. So, 2020 actually recreated the bathroom and it was, it's fascinating. We'll link to the episode in the show notes, but one of the um, cabinet doors was pulled off of its hinges and Shelly was very petite. I want to say she was like five, four-ish. And so they do this recreation where they try to imagine you're falling in this tub. What do you reach Mm. for? And they really don't think she could have even reached the, the cabinet doors and then there are so many other places to reach and grab that it's just, it's it sort of feels like maybe a fight went down mm. in this bathroom and the closet or the, the cabinet door was pulled off the hinge. Awful. And so when the medical examiner performs the autopsy, he finds evidence that perhaps she had been strangled. Um, she has that petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes, much like we talked about. Oops. That petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes, much like we talked about with John Bonet. You know, that's a, a sort of a classic sign of strangulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the medical examiner really thought 
she had been murdered by strangulation and then left in the bathtub to look like she had drowned. In case you're seething about Rod, just like I am, um, don't worry, he was convicted of his wife's murder in 2019, and he is currently serving 25 years to life behind bars. He will not be eligible for parole until 2040. And I keep thinking about this guy who is horrible, obviously, but I go back to that like beginning of their relationship, which was so fast and furious. And there was something about it that sort of reminded me of that Dirty John, like mm-hmm. love bombing, where, you know, this woman is just so overwhelmed by this doting person who's so amazing to her. And they do get together very, very quickly. And then it's really just this play on controlling and trying to take the woman's money. Maybe I'm stretching there, but there was just something in the back of my mind that that sort of reminded mm-hmm. me of that storyline. Yeah, story I can see that. Yeah, and well. the age difference too Yeah, is, is unusual to me. Agreed. Yeah, I can see that. So you'll have to go back and watch this 2020 episode well, because the look on Deborah Roberts' face when Rod is trying to explain to her how he never shoved Shelly, he's like, oh no, I never shoved her. I just, I put her on the floor in a controlled but quick fashion. And I'm like, uh, I think that's another word for shoving. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so yeah, so, oh, I love Deborah Roberts. Oh, I know. She's so cute. She's yes. so cute. I like, of all... I mean, I have a list of people I want to have dinner with, but her and Al Roker are on the top of my list. Why Al Roker? Well, they're married. What? So I figure out, like, if we're going to have dinner, it'll be like a couple's dinner. <laughs> you bring your spouse. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. They've been married for a long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to apartment 515 for a minute. As I mentioned, her dad purchased the unit in 1985 for $142,000. Now, Shelly was murdered at the very end of 2009, but remember, the police didn't really investigate the property until like June of 2020, until like June of 2010, almost six months after her murder. And in 2012, the property was listed for $1.68 million and it sold three months later for a million four twenty-five, which equates, if you're doing the math, to about $2,300 a square foot. Wow. Talk about some pricey real estate. Right. So this is the first like condo that we've covered. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if that makes a difference for you all and whether you would live there, whether you would buy it, whether you would rent it, whether you'd list it. I think I'm a yes across the board. Yeah. I, think I would do all of the above. I think I would too. And I was trying to figure out why it's different. And it seems like there's some sort of like dispersed scariness Mm -hmm. because it's such a large building. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I see that. I don't think that makes any actual sense, but in my head, that's how I think how I would feel. Like it could have happened in any of these units. Right. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally, I would do, do all of those. Melanie, I know you'd live there. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I don't have much fear. Now, um, no, I think your point is, is uh, well taken from the outside. Each of these doors looks, I mean, exactly the same. I mean, from only murders in the building. I mean, they all look exactly yeah. the same on the outside, even if they're very different in the inside. Um, so yeah, from that perspective, and I definitely thought your point earlier about how an agent doesn't really have to disclose um, that a murder took there makes it probably a much easier sell for you as an agent. I know that when you were looking to try and even determine what the exact 
first uh, apartment number was. It was very challenging. It was. Yeah. You know, most of the um, stories just reference the building, not her mm. actual address. And so I think from a, a Google Google ability perspective, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you, it, you're not going to Google and find that that occurred in that apartment very yeah. quickly. Yeah. I've spent a decent amount of time in New York. Um, I went to grad school in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and we would go up to New York all the time. And then my husband worked up in the city for a while, um, even when he was in Dallas. So he would fly every week to New York. So I've spent a decent amount of time up there. And um, I'm probably more of a downtown girl. Um, I, I will, like the Dorchester is on, I think, West 68th Street. So that's about... What, 10 blocks north of, of like Midtown West. So I, I, I like it because it's a little bit more accessible. It's really close to the Lincoln Center. It's really close to the park. Um, once it gets up in the, you know, high 70s and 80s, I'm thinking it's too far for me. Um, but I definitely, I'm probably more of a, you know, Greenwich Village, each East Village, uh, lo- Lower Manhattan person. I love how you are like already like a little bit of a New York snob about which neighborhood oh, you live oh, in. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> All the way from uh, Dallas. Y- That's amazing. Yeah. No, my friends in New York, like everyone kind of has their own, you know, hood. It's just like anywhere. You know, we joke about how we don't really drive into the suburbs a lot, you know. So True. we, you know, the three of us live in what, you know, you know is more inner Dallas uh, areas, you know, inside the Beltway, inside the Loop. Um, and we're like, oh, God, I got to go out past 635 today. I have to go past, you know, the George Bush. I mean, that's so far away for us. But even in New York, it's the same thing. You know, you you stay in a hood, you stay in a in an in an area like I don't go north of Houston Street or you know south or south Houston Street, et cetera. So it's just like anywhere that you kind of get into your routine. Um, so yeah, I I do like some of the the lower Manhattan areas. Um, I don't really have a big reason why. I just think that there's a vibrancy there, but I do like this area that that the, in Upper West Side because it is very kind of centrally located. Um, so it's, it's a pretty cool neighborhood. Well, the next time I go, I'm going to check it out. Apparently, it's really close to Juilliard too, which oh. makes sense. It's you really know, close to Lincoln Center. Yeah. Lincoln Center. Yeah. So, I mean, it would be worth a day exploring. I think that could be fun. We'll add it to our list. Yeah. Thanks I mean, this do. list is just getting longer and longer. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're, we're uh, uh, traveling uh, virtually through our uh, the stories. That's right. That's right. That's what we did during COVID. We read right. books about traveling all over the world just to make ourselves feel better for not traveling. It was great. That was a good story. Good. Well, yeah. I'm glad you liked it. Um, this may be putting you on the spot, but do you know what episode we're doing next week? I have a few in mind. Okay. So we shall see. All right. Yeah. It'll be good. Done, done, done. It'll be good. It'll be good. All right. Well, until next week. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our crime estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. Mm-hmm.